This is Coda Radio, episode 549, for December 20th, 2024. Hey friend, happy holidays, and welcome into Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly talk show. Taking a pragmatic look at the art and the business, the software development, and the world of technology. Over there, organizing his Spotify playlist, it's our host, Mr. Dominic. Hey Mike. I use the unforgiving uh, bundling power of Apple Music. Thank you very much. It is so much worse. It does suck, though. So bad. But I already, I kind of have to pay for it, because I have the stupid... Oh, yeah. uh, Oh, same. Yeah. 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 I got to back up all my damn kids' devices and my own damn devices. Yeah, yeah. And I got the dumb Apple Music, and it sucks. I mean, the audio quality is better than Spotify, so there's that. Yeah, it's just the the AI is ridiculous. I think I just had Spotify on the mind because they admitted... Just like we speculated, dude, on the show, that they have a sweetheart deal with Mm. Google. They pay no store fees. No fees. They they just get it free. You know, I I, I have to to pat ours on the back a little bit here. For years, since 2012, we have been saying that this doesn't make a whole lot of sense. There have to be sweetheart deals and backroom bullshit going on with all these app stores and we got just particularly me got just conspiracy like, theorists you're just jealous sour grapes. Yep. <laughs> you know, you're blah 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 and it's like now we have all these court cases and yeah from the jump this shit was going on it just it, took us a decade to be validated that's all right because <laughs> the subpoenas had to start flying right yeah hey, yeah yeah yep yep so yeah they get it for free yeah They've also, both companies had put together a $50 million success fund, which I didn't look into what that was for, but God, it must be nice to have that kind of money. Yeah, let's be, you want to put together like a $50 million success fund? Yeah, what are we going to use it for? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, okay. Sounds good to me. Uh, that that sounds like you know, co-marketing and to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, though, that they were going to Apple, and you know they were trying to get that same sweet deal from Uncle Cook, and he's like, get out of here. Get out of here with your free. Get out of here. You should be grateful that we'll let you play your music on our iPhone. Get out of here with your free. <laughs> yes, Apple's attitude. I, I just, okay, a little tangent here. So for, you know, our sponsor, Alderaan Games, I've been doing some uh, iOS integration work with their Unreal game, Path of Titans. And I had to go through this vision quest of the history of Apple's policies regarding in-app web browsers to do things like in this case OAuth. I hope you had a guru to guide you through this. Um I I kind of had a guru and that guru was Tim Cook. Uh-huh. uh-huh. They I like I feel like I knew this but didn't internalize it emotionally how much they hate the web. Oh yeah, right, right. It's it's just ridiculous. Like there's I can't remember the exact permission off the top of my head. But there is a completely unrelated permission to doing anything with with a web browser. But if you take it, it restricts what you can do with uh, regarding uh, URL redirects for some reason. Well, you got to be careful. It's also like it's it's documented that it does that. It's not documented as to why. So what? It's like this is the rule, <laughs> but we won't explain the rule to you. Right. I feel like it's like any opportunity to have you not use an open standard and instead use the Apple proprietary thing, they're just going to take. 
Well, yeah, one's easy to integrate, you know, services, and one completely bypasses. It's just they want the users to have the best experience on the platform possible, Mike. But it's like it's like OAuth, right? It's like getting a redirect URL and parsing a string out of it as a token so you can then, you know, log into your game. It's really not anything that, like, would circumvent their in-app purchases, which I feel like we've pretty much proven. And uh, thank you, Judge, uh, what is it, Judge Daniels? Yeah. For getting Tim Cook to admit on the stand that why do we do this? It's, it's our business model. It's how, quote, how we monetize our IP. Mm-hmm. So, but, it, yeah, just the... If if you're ever curious and you're like not an iOS developer, go take some time and read some like Stack Overflows or devlogs on how ridiculously nerfed iOS Safari is for devs. It's it's sad. Anyway, you know it's not sad. Robes, robes, the Coda robes back. Uh, it's overpriced. Well, not intentionally. I mean, it's just you know, I think it's probably Joe Biden's fault. I was going to blame one individual. And then you know, like the shipping's a lot. But I got a promo code where you can use – if you use the promo code SWIFT, as in Taylor or as in the development language, your choice. Better be Taylor. I'm not saying. It'll take 10 bucks off, and then you can get one of these things that I'm never, ever going to make again for the rest of my life. Uh, <laughs> so jupitergarage.com. He's not get kidding. Your, get yourself a robe. Uh, I got to get rid of these things because they're costing me just to keep them. And um, I don't know. You know, they're good, so everything's so expensive now. I guess proportionately, these don't seem as expensive as they did the first time. You know, <laughs> things have just gotten really expensive, but the price of the coder robe stayed the same, so everything else came up. <laughs> I, I will say the coder robe uh, is probably the best piece of merchandising we've ever done. Oh, yeah. In that it's awesome. It's also the worst in that it doesn't make any money. Yeah, and uh, it's it's costing money now at this point to store yeah. it. And I, I remember when you did the first one, it was just a huge logistical pain in the ass. Right, because that was the, right during the yeah, pandemic and pandemic. the supply chain so, shut down. With that mm-hmm. said, I wear my robe every day. So. And I was uh, – oh, God, bad timing. So Defiant Place asks on Reddit uh, if a team – if it only takes a team of 10 a couple of months to make or clone like an Uber or DoorDash type app – then why does it require hundreds or even thousands of software engineers to keep it running and maintain it? So that's an interesting question. Why could 10 people clone an app, but it takes 1,000 people to maintain it at scale? So I'm going to assume these numbers are all exaggerated because 1,000 seems like a lot. Sure, yeah. Well, one, if you have, it's very easy to write something slapdash uh, with no regard for technical debt and just get it out the door, write duct tape together. Two, cloning an app is is kind of easy because you have a spec that you can just download and be like i'm cloning you maintenance well maintenance is hard right like let's take the case of uber well uber actually has a giant back-end service that has to run efficiently and reliably all the time in so many different locales with different Region. legal structures and issues and yeah. well if, you, if you've ever seen super pump they just break the law anyway so whatever but also i i think what the writer, what Defiant Place is really talking about on Reddit is more enterprise dev. And I can tell you the challenge with enterprise dev is never writing the app. It's always getting a clear spec that all the stakeholders, emphasis on all, will commit to and stick with and not uh, basically change their minds. Yes. And like, what does maintain mean? Does maintain mean keep the servers up and just like, 
you know, update annually for iOS API changes? (laughs) Or does maintain mean that, you know, Claire from accounting has changed her mind for the 400th time since this app launched two days ago? And we're rewriting how we do authentication, but we still need to support the prior authentication scheme Mm -hmm. of, you know, SAML. (laughs) And yeah, I mean, I, I can... I have an actual story here. Uh, I think I mentioned them before. I did a job for a very enterprisey, very large printer company that you've definitely heard of. And the app was a relatively small Ionic app that took uh, two years because, or just, just shy of two years. The number of stakeholders started as like five, and we ended up with like 40 people on Zoom calls. Oh my God. And everybody had to have their little uh, picadillos, so to speak. It just be it, literally we spent more. I mean, it became a problem like justifying our invoices because we spent more time in meetings trying to suss out what the hell they were talking about. You know, you you're touching on something that Topological Rabbit commented on Reddit that I thought was really good. At least it's up my alley. He says something no one's touched upon yet: corporate software development is astoundingly inefficient. See the business side of the business desperately wants software engineering to work like running a widget factory. You get estimates on how long it takes to build and assemble the molds, then you factor in how fast the machines run, how much material goes into each widget, and how long it takes to package them up and ship them out. Simple, predictable, planable. Employees at the factory are easily replaceable cogs. Businesses love this model. Writing software, however is not like operating a widget factory. It is much closer to solving a mathematical equation. It doesn't matter how simple or complicated it looks on the surface. The actual amount of work and the time that it will take to do that work is mostly unknowable until you've sat down and done it. And it takes a good mathematician or engineer for a developer to do that well. Businesses hate this model. They hate it so much, they just decided it's not true. So now software engineers are stuck in this insane model of development where everything has to be easily estimated out beforehand, estimated longer than it actually takes, and you're called bad at estimation. If you estimate shorter than it actually takes, you're incompetent at engineering. The only way to survive in this environment is to massively pad one's estimates and then only work on the tasks that are super super tiny focusing on the minutiae at the expense of structure of the whole. This makes devs go at a snail's pace. And also, I think a lot of those meetings do as well. That's my adding right there. And he adds, you got to run out of time. You got to have those padded estimations or you get called out as bad as re- and results in badly written nightmares of code bases, which is what you get. You get badly written code bases. So to do any real amount of work now requires huge teams that trudge along incredibly slowly. He says, yeah, I might be better. Yeah. I mean that it, it's an unfortunate reality and software you know, development in businesses might not and the you know the needs of a business are not always compatible in the way that they you know are structured. Well, you could even take it a step further uh, further, wow, English. The uh the individual teams and stakeholders in the project may not be aligned, which in the case I'm thinking of is basically what the problem was. <laughs> yeah. Is that what was better or what the kind of accounting money people felt would be, you know, honestly, like, okay, the whole point of the app was to cut the overtime of the maintenance technicians, right? Like, they wouldn't say it like that. They're like, we're going to improve efficiency, but it was to over the maintenance technicians. Yeah. And the maintenance department, who is like a core of their business, was very resistant to that for some reason. 
So, you know, they kept having exceptions like, oh, but we can't really automate that. We we do need to do a second check. You know, it's, yeah, it's, I Tapping don't know. Tapping the brakes every chance they can. Well, right. And, and raising objections and the accounting people who are paying the bill are getting frustrated because, you know, it's enterprise software kind of sucks in a lot of ways. I mean, it, it, it it's really, it's, oh, I could, we have so many, I mean, if you go through the back catalog, there's so many stories, but I mean, the other thing that can happen to happen on other projects is literally the person who's championing the project, like goes on maternity leave and then they kill the project while she's gone. Uh-huh. <laughs> Something that actually happened. Right. And so it's kind of like, when you're dealing in the enterprise, you, you have to understand it when you're pat, if you're going to pat your estimate, you need to have a whole section for political nonsense because there's going to be a lot of it. Alderon.games slash coder. Alderon Games is looking to hire some talented remote workers. And I think that might just be you if you listen to this show. And finding new people is hard. That was something I was talking with Matt, the founder of Alderon Games. He's been listening to Coda Radio forever, so he knows our struggles. And I think when it came time to grow, he thought of some of the things we've shared on the show. And I think one of his insights, and it's a good one, is if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably a little intellectually curious and technically inclined. You might be just the right type of employee, and they're hiring remote workers. They've got several positions open, a back-end PHP position, Node.js, a senior Unreal game developer position. Uh, a standard Unreal developer position. There's several game designer positions and QA tester and security engineer and probably even a spot in there for a Linux admin. So go over to alderon.game slash coder. That'll kind of get your foot in the door for a company that is a self-publishing game studio. That's pretty rare and that's pretty unique. And I think uh, if you listen to this show, you'd probably like that vibe. And they're looking for somebody that might just be you. So check them out. Go brush up your resume. Maybe get your GitHub looking good. I don't know, go go do something on one of the Jupiter Broadcasting projects, you know, get a little bit of an establishment there. It doesn't take a lot, just needs to show some initiative. And head over to alderon.game slash coder, see if there's something that fits. If there isn't a specific job posting there, but you've got a great skill set, you're a quick learner, you've got maybe some Linux background or some other development or QA background, reach out. Tell them Chris told you to reach out. Say, Matt, Chris told me, even though you didn't have a specific listing, it'd be okay if I reach out. I'll take that. I'll own that. And I, I think it's something you should consider doing. Could be a great spot. Could be a great opportunity. They're looking to hire, and it could be you. Alderon.games slash coder. That's Alderon.games slash coder. Well, I had to set this story aside for you. Oh, I love it. This individual claims to have hacked the online Magic the Gathering arena for a 100% win rate. I guess uh, they looked into it, and they decided to focus on network communication and the client-side code. They discovered that the game runs a local bot client called Sparky for tutorials, bot matches, and it shares the same connection as the player and the same credentials to the server as the player, this little Sparky bot. He looked at, he used Reflection to connect to a bot. Uh, he used I don't, I don't, Reflection, I guess it's a, a framework, uh, to basically stand up a bot that he could control. Using that same authentication framework, whole thing's a .NET app, <laughs> which he's basically taken apart, uh, figured out how to do that. Uh, and the game server doesn't differentiate between the player and a bot using the same client ID. And so the author was able to ac- essentially create what he called InstaWin code. He'd connect the, uh, a bot to both seats in a regular match. 
Uh, and then he'd be able to – I don't know exactly how the game works, but he'd essentially be able to prompt an immediate concession from an opponent. And then the, he would essentially get rewards for winning against a human opponent by doing this and would essentially stack the winnings for the game. And then I guess he's now notified the server operators and they have patched this. But it was pretty fascinating. If you go into the blog post, he talks about how, how, how elated he was when he's like, oh, it's a .NET app. Well, let me just pull this apart. He says, in the end, most of it was just accessing in-game memory objects to get all the information I needed to know what game I'm currently connected to in matchmaking. Then I use that information to connect the bot to the game. Once I have all the info, the code figures out the opponent's seat based off of my own, creates and connects the bot, adds some spice, and immediately makes the bot conceit. <laughs> I love this. How horrible and great is this at the same time? And he said it was actually initially more tricky than he expected. Because the a lot of the decision-making is happening server-side. You know, like the, the, the shuffling of the cards and a lot of that. And then it just tells the client the results. A lot of times when you're hacking a game, like say like a first-person shooter, a lot of the heavy lifting is being done on the client side. And so you can manipulate that client side. But in the case of this game, the heavy lifting is actually being done server-side. So he had to come at it from a client, a client and network vulnerability standpoint when he realized he could essentially create his own bot based off of... <laughs> <laughs> They're sparky bot. <laughs> it really, it really tickles me. I, I love this. I mean, you know what? It, it, it's great. I don't think, uh, you know, he did the right thing and notified them, so they shut that down pretty quickly. I, I think Arena is actually a Unity C sharp app. Aha! Uh-huh. Of course, sure. So, yeah, there you go. Good old magic. Yeah, nice little way to ship it on there. I put that in the show notes if you want to read the entire story. Um, because it, it's a nice little read, could be a good little uh, good little escape from the bad news. But speaking of hacking, today's story is, is really a doozy as we go on the air, and uh, I wanted to get your take on this. I'll play a clip so that we, we don't have to be the ones to set it up, and then we can chat about it. Hackers affiliated with China's People's Liberation Army have infiltrated critical services here in the U.S., Alexandra Hoff joins us now from our nation's capital. Alex, this is not good. No, it's not. I mean, this infiltration appears to be part of a broader effort to insert chaos into our logistical systems. The information collected could then be weaponized if the U.S. and China were to become engaged directly in the Pacific. According to reporting from The Washington Post, setting multiple U.S. and industry security officials, China's cyber army army is invading critical U.S. services, like an attempt to break into the system behind Texas's independent power grid. Other victims include a water utility in Hawaii, a West Coast port, and at least one oil and gas pipeline according to that report you're seeing there. Brandon Wells, executive director of the Department of Homeland Security Cybersecurity Agency, told The Washington Post this, quote, It is very clear that Chinese attempts to compromise critical infrastructure are in part to pre-position themselves to be able to disrupt or destroy that critical infrastructure in the event of a conflict to either prevent the United States from being able to project power into Asia or to cause societal chaos inside the United States to affect our decision making around a crisis. The report notes that over the past year, hackers affiliated with the people People's Liberation Army in China have accessed the computer systems of about two dozen critical entities. That's right. To cause chaos. This is uh, coming today as we record from The Washington Post. They say cyber, China's cyber army, I can't believe we're calling it that, uh, has invaded multiple U.S. critical services. And officials tell this national security reporter at The Washington Post that 
The intrusions are part of a broader effort to develop ways to sow panic and chaos and snarl logistics in the event of a U.S.-China conflict in the Pacific. I don't know what it is, but I don't buy any of this. I don't – I mean, I do I do grant you there's definitely software out there that's unpatched that shouldn't be connected to the internet. But this idea that chaos uh, could – would it ins- I, I'm not really – I'm not seeing the threat unless we have a lot more things like pumps and whatnot connected to the internet than I thought we did. But this is coming up over and over again, and it's st- starting to sound kind of serious. They're starting to name individual facilities. And the officials said that they have burrowed into, quote, two dozen targets over the past year. I, w- I would say, of course, it's happening, right? The curious thing is, why is it being shared? Because it it would be a little naive to say that everybody, you know, everybody's hacking everybody is the reality. Right. So, and I, I actually think attribution is a lot more difficult. And um, I have felt this way for a decade. I feel like we as as uh, as consumers have failed to demand proper attribution and i think the press has failed to demand it and i think the people that make these proclamations like the washington post and federal government officials they have never demonstrated proper attribution um we know thanks to the snowden leaks that as of years ago the cia was aware of multiple techniques to make it look like they were coming from any country they wanted so it's probable that every other nation state also is aware of that type of technology and anybody that knows about VPNs. So um, I think we have to remain extremely skeptical of these types of stories because this is a fantastic way to really scare the crap out of everyone about technology, which is one of our favorite things to do these days is how scary is it? How fast is it becoming scarier? And how much more should I worry? Those are generally the questions. And how quickly should we pass legislation focused on, are you ready for our buzzword of the year and probably next year? Safety. Absolutely. Good point. Absolutely. I mean, that to me, see, maybe I'm frying too much uh, gator bacon here. To me, all this says is get scared. Don't question our legislation. Uh, let's regulate everything. Right. I, you I, need I, the politicians to save you from the evil technological cyber pandemic. But you know what didn't pass? You know what didn't pass? What? My man Chuck Schumer's UFO disclosure bill. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. I'm telling you, uh, have you, if you've seen the X-Files, because <laughs> I'm not convinced that there's not some guy smoking, uh, you know, morally cigarettes, if they even make those anymore, in some room being like, just tell him China did it. She will shut him up. You know what? Right. I'm more worried about strange UFOs than I am about China hackers shutting down water pumps. I'm worried about old patrician white guys who are still alive smoking that work at the Pentagon than I am about uh, any of us, really. You, I, you solve it by disconnecting this equipment from the internet. This sh- shouldn't be on the internet. Nope, nope. Um, I mean, and if, you can, if your you power can, plant is, yeah. Yeah, and you could have, have backup gear, you know? Uh, same with ransomware. You're, if you're concerned about ransomware attacks, good, good get your data backed up right well you, but you have things like you know operational security background checks for a reason right like yeah the way this would happen i mean do we have to go back to stuxnet right where basically you just like flip somebody inside of the you know the facility to iranian government wallet? they right. go inside there they manage to get malware passed through an air gap system and then the centrifuges for these reactors were set to spin off yes. kilter a little bit, and it destroyed malware 
created by the Israel government, the U.S. government, and some other, you know, Five Eyes nations, destroyed these centrifuges through malware. I mean, if you, if you, if you really want to play like the James Bond, uh, you know, John le Carre, uh game here, what we've so far been able to prove is it's less Chinese hackers and more beautiful Chinese and Russian women that congressmen just seem to fucking love for some reason. Like they, they sure can't. Do. Like if you're a U.S. congressman and you are, this is a little off off uh, wokeness, but and uh, you know, let's say you're from like Tennessee. Yeah, you're like a white good old boy. And a beautiful Asian woman walks up to you. You should be suspicious. If a woman named Tatiana walks up to you, you should be suspicious, right? Doesn't mean she's a, necessarily a spy, but uh, I don't know. Matt Gates, what do you think? I mean, I'm just saying, like, how about the one who's now serving a, in the Russian parliament? Yeah, there's a, yeah, yeah, there's a like, couple. It's, it's crazy. You know, history hasn't changed since even before Rome. More secrets were lost on pillows than are ever going to be lost by hacking. <laughs> I'm just, I'm sorry, but I'm You're worried so about. Right though, I, that is way more of a risk than the Chinese hackers. Yeah, yep. it's, it's you know. Yep. So if you want to, if you want to play like you know, uh, you know, armchair M over here, then that's like scan the republican national convention and the democratic convention and say wow there's some very attractive young women here from asia that's a problem right like let's let's go interview them and make sure they're not spies and what's crazy okay. is they don't get censured they don't get in trouble for it 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 just like it's like a punchline and that's it well even though even though they're like now like like in the case of that one gal She's literally working for the Russian government. She ran for for the Duma, the Duma rather, on the platform of I yeah. was a very effective spy. And I she mean, like she like snuck out, hightailed it out of the country, like when her yeah. cover was blown, like from a spy novel. Yeah, it's one. And there was uh, Rupert Murdoch's ex-wife, almost, uh, Wendy Dang, almost certainly a Chinese spy. You know, yeah, yeah. Although the irony is there's probably some really good-hearted FBI agent somewhere who really wants to bust this up and, like, do the right thing that was told by his supervisor, you can't just look for attractive Asian women at the political conventions. That's racial profiling. I guess part of me is worried that this sort of, like, Chinese hacker fear stuff is going to be used to do more incentivization of the tech industry. Yeah, it's going right? to be used for surveillance and to pass insanely – Yeah. Big brother licenses, yeah. regulate things that are going to slow down the innovation and development, and just create it into basically the next auto industry. They're going to try to take turn. The, they're going to try to turn Silicon Valley into Detroit. Yeah, Magnolia Mayhem is right. They did just catch one that was just revealed to be a spy. It happens yep. all the time. Yeah, it's yep. Fang Fang was another one. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Meanwhile, we have a senator who had to be told to sit down by Bernie Sanders because he wanted to get in a fist fight with the guy from the Teamsters. Right. He, if I, if if I'm just saying, uh, you know, Chinese and Russian intelligence operatives, that guy looks like a pretty easy target. You know what they should do is every segment they're going to run about Chinese hackers or whatever, you know, AI tech scare, scrap it and run a segment about the deficit and run a segment about the budget and run a segment about the debt because we are so screwed. It should be the number one issue of this election. And instead, we, we scare ourselves about these these non-issues. You haven't heard of the gospel of modern mon- monetary policy, oh, yeah. or as I call it, Candyland. <laughs> yeah, twenty twenty four is going to be wild, isn't it? Twenty twenty four is. I honestly, I I know we mean we need to keep advertisers, but we have to. If if Trump and Biden do a debate, we have to do another special. 
<laughs> we can call it grumpy old men. I I mean I'm I could almost just say yes to that because I'm so sure it's not going to happen. That uh, if, like, if, <laughs> if, if you saw the Republicans debating, you know Trump is just going to literally walk in. And, yeah, it's like, yeah. Who who would have thought? Who would have thought? Here we are because the Republican debates are over. Who would have thought that the actual smart play was to skip the debates? That seemed like such an unthinkable move at the beginning of all this, and now watching what an absolute crap fair these debates have been i actually think the smarter play was just to skip them he won by not attending the debates well i feel like it's like yeah don't hang out at the bar with people you know to be jackasses yeah it's it's you know i mean nikki haley's not terrible but it wasn't a good showing for any of them now i feel like you know just looking at it from where where are the opportunities here i think again what benefits from a lot of this stuff that we're talking about, the direction a lot of this is going, is self-hosting, running your own infrastructure again as a business or as a home labber. Like, I feel like there's just more and more reasons. Like when we talk about push notifications getting surveilled, when we, we talk about uh, all of these little encroachments of notification, licensing, regulation, mm-hmm. etc., it feels like the the last kind of bastion of the original internet where things are under your control – and your data is private and you're not getting mined is just going to be self-hosted stuff, you know, home lab stuff or business on-premise stuff. It seems uh, it seems almost certain. Just a real-time update. Apparently, Minibeep, the uh, Android app that does iMessage, came online literally as we've been recording yeah. these two shows. Yeah, yeah. So they're back <laughs> for know. now until Uncle Tim swings that beautiful, beautiful van hammer again. Yep. Yep, it's crazy. Isn't I it? have a theory that they're doing this for publicity and know they're going to get sued into oblivion. But mm, I like that. That's not quite bacon yet. That's just probably some nice, tasty ham. The, the gator is still fermenting, right? We're still curing <laughs> it, rather. Tailscale.com slash coder. Head on over there and get a free personal account for up to 100 devices, three sub accounts, and you really can try Tailscale. It is a simple, straightforward, secure mesh VPN built on top of Wirecard. Tailscale lets you easily manage private resources, enables you to quickly SSH into your devices using your Tailscale credentials, and allows you to work securely from anywhere in the world, even if you got that double carrier NAT. I can tell you I've switched from AT&T, Verizon, and Starlink in just a span of a few minutes, and Tailscale doesn't miss a beat. And One of the things I love is it is protected by Wireguard, and all of my devices can talk directly to each other inside this mesh network. And once I add a device, it's got a, it's got a static IP in this tailnet. They just recently added some functionality too where you can re-IP things. And you can throw services in there like Jellyfin and DNS and your chat and NextCloud. And pretty soon everything is in this tailnet. And if you're a developer, this is so great when you need ad hoc networking, you want to put some services that are available regardless of where you are. Maybe they're across cloud providers. In my case, I will have systems that are on Linode they're a VM on a workstation I have at the studio. They're in my RV. They're in my pocket. And they're all on one flat network. And you can quickly get started in just minutes. And for you enterprises out there, if you're in an enterprise and you're trying to advocate for a better VPN technology, send them to tailscale.com coder. It just massively simplifies the implementation for enterprises while still snapping in with your tooling, your authentication infrastructure, your two factors. If you got some, I hope you do. It'll work with all of that. It's such a powerful tool while being really simple for the end user. It's finally that solution on top of WireGuard I always wanted. I love it. It's changed my networking game. 
Literally, I have no inbound firewall ports anymore. It's really great. It's really fast. And you can try it for free for up to 100 devices while you support the show. Tailscale.com slash coder. Well, Slack ran a big old survey. They say based on responses from more than 10,000, quote, desk workers around the globe, they have determined that there is a surprising connection between after hours work and decreased productivity. And they say, Slack tells us, that we should use this data to, quote, structure the workday to maximize productivity and strengthen employee well-being and satisfaction. The key learnings included employees who log off at the end of the day of the workday register a 20% higher productivity scores than those who felt obligated to work after hours. Employees who took time for breaks during the workday also had better productivity. On average, desk workers say the ideal amount of focus time was around four hours a day. And more than two hours a day in a meeting is a tipping point at which the majority of the workers felt overburdened by meetings. So more than two hours of meetings a day was a tipping point. Three out of every four, quote, desk worker reported working in the 3 to 6 p.m. time frame, but only one in four considered those hours highly productive. Employees who felt obligated to work after hours registered 20% lower productivity scores than those who logged off at the end of the standard workday. They also reported 2.1 times worse related work stress, 1.7 times lower satisfaction with their overall working environment, and two times greater burnout. You find any of this to be actually insightful? I, I'm not buying that there isn't a direct equivalent to working late and lower productivity because there are times when you work late, at least for myself, and it is exponentially more productive than, it was, dur- than I was during the day. Yeah, I mean, this is this is the Bell Labs lesson, right? Bell Labs invented a lot of the stuff we still use, working nine to five uh, with uh, well-defined specs and months and months of uh, actually, you know, waterfall planning. I just don't think we live in that world anymore. We just, we don't, right? We live in a world of, you know, premature optimization, of offshoring, of companies trying any way they can to cut wages. I would also wonder if Slack has a major issue. Do they not do the death march? I feel like they would. Yeah, especially like after Teams came out and they felt like their entire existence was under threat. You're telling me they didn't grind a bit? I mean, if this is this. I would say yes. Yeah, sustained long days don't work. But right, the, forced. Yeah. Non like no non negotiable. You got to work late and you got to do that all the time. That's bad. That's yeah. Of course, that's going to lead to worse productivity. That's obvious. Yeah, it's. I think what what this kind of what this report tries to paint is this picture of no more than two hours of meetings a day and uh, do your work in the nine to five window and you'll be the most productive. And when you go outside that window, your productivity starts to drop off. Right. But Um, it's not necessarily negative. Right. Well, let's say it's a 20 percent reduction in productivity. For the hours after five. I mean, I'm not advocating for death marches here and like, you know, all-nighters. I just, this feels like the kind of thing that's easy to say and gets you a lot of clicks and, you know, people will talk about on like Slate Money or whatever, uh, or Planet Money rather on NPR, but it it, it doesn't jive with my understanding of reality. I think it makes, I think it also, it's it's totally going to be dependent on the work. Yeah. A developer, I think, or maybe a creative person who writes is often going to find a burst of productivity when it's quiet and other people aren't asking them when there's no kiddos constantly. running around if you work or from them. home. 
Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. So it, it, to me, it felt kind of out of date, out of touch, and it felt odd coming from a company like Slack, who maybe they're trying to counter this image, but like, you're the people that enabled remote work. You're the people that enabled, you know, we thought it was bad with email and always being reachable after hours, but Slack took it to the next level. The boss can send push notifications to your phone at all times, right? Um, it's. A, I think it's maybe just about branded image than anything else. This, Yeah, this feels like a clever thing someone in marketing wrote, which fair enough, right? That's That's their job. <laughs> I'll put a link in the notes, though, because, like, I mean... If this if this registers with you, listener, and you can use it to advocate for something in your business, go for it. You know what? Go for it. All right. It's time. Beam it in. Spring it down. Is Babylon 5, at its core, a better show than Star Trek Deep Space Nine? That's the question. We're not going to go oh. franchise versus franchise, oh. right? Oh, you or do you want to steel man that it's Deep Space Nine? Okay, okay. Oh, or do you want to go all Star Trek? I just thought it'd be—it's sort of like an impossible fight when you go against fifty years of a franchise that has a cultural impact. I'll go Deep Space Nine. I, I think that yeah. gives you a, a hard edge, but I'll go Deep Space Nine. It's okay. Probably premise this right for folks who don't know. The reason it's Deep Space Nine is Babylon Five is. In fact, there was a lawsuit about this. Is a show where they're on a space station pretty much in hostile territory, right? They're pretty close. Where Deep Space Nine is also a show where they're on a space station. There's like a wormhole that leads directly to hostile territory. Both shows have a war story to them. There's a war story. There's shifting alliances. There's uh, uh, factions. I, I guess they would really be called races that are kind of neutral, but kind of not, right? I'm thinking of our like our homies, the Bajorans on Deep Space Nine. Frangies. And, yeah, well, the Frangies are great. I gotta tell you. <laughs> that's why you're gonna win, because I, I, you know what? I love the Ferengi. I yeah, have a copy of the Rules of Acquisition. Counterpoint. Oh, you do? Every <laughs> night. Okay, good. Like Counterpoint, five. though, uh, Deep Space Nine has Bajorans in it as well. So, kind of neutralizes some of the positive of the Ferengi. Bajorans are confusing. They're the worst. They're, they feel like... Like oh, it's probably not the right time to say this, but they feel like Eastern European freedom fighters. But then sometimes they feel like weird monks. So here's my take. Babylon is, unfortunately, it's a little too cringe and it doesn't hold up. It is. Especially cringe. season one. It is really, really rough to the point where the community has had to come up with like season one guides. Like there's one in in this thread I'm going to link where it has a do it in five episodes so that way you can avoid the pain of season one. And then if you can really stomach it, they have five add-in episodes that you should slot in. And the thing that makes these add-in episodes good is they have Star Trek actors in them. Oh, that is a fair point. There's a, there's a, quite a lot of crossover actors. Yeah. 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 And it really feels like when I watched as much as I could, the acting was so hit and miss. It felt disorganized. Well, this is fair, right? So Babylon 5, especially season one, was super low budget. It actually almost didn't get uh, aired for just reasons of like being untested. Also, I, I'd even add to the cringe. You, we know I'm not a, a woke warrior here, but man, some of the stuff in season one of Babylon 5 is more questionable than the DS9 stuff. Uh, it's It also doesn't help that they had to change the... Uh, 
the captain because the dude had a mental breakdown. Man, you are selling me on this right now. I got to say. <laughs> yeah, no, no it, it's see. OK, this is the thing about Babylon 5, right? It's like Doctor Who, especially like, you know, old Doctor Who or like I would say like Eccleston Doctor Who. It basically sucks if you're expecting like good graphics and a budget and it not to be kind of up its own ass a little bit. Yeah, I really just I should not be their lawyer. No, I follow what you're saying though. It's like Star Trek the original series 2 at, at its first pass is kind of campy. Right. It's hard to get like you it's easy to bounce right off it because of the production of the 60s, some of the acting, the campiness of the effects, the just open sexism. Right. Yeah, right. But if you kind of listen for the message underneath and you actually follow the story, like, oh, this is actually some pretty good stuff. Well, it, it's the same thing. But, like, you know, it's it's Babylon 5 is, I would say, cringe in the way that uh, the next generation season one is, like, super preachy and cringe, right? It's like, you know, Picard's your dad. He's going to tell you why you're wrong and how you could be better. And, you know, don't you want to live up to daddy's ideals and be a better man kind of thing? But I don't know. It's It gets better. Like, so, okay, the thing I like about Babylon 5, let's do something positive. The humans suck. Like, it, in, in many respects, Earth is just the bad guy. Would you agree to that? Or, Well, I don't know if I've seen enough to agree, but that is the general sense I was getting, is that the humans are some of the most flawed characters. Like, in contrast to Star Trek, where generally it's like bad guy alien of the week, or if you're going to have a bad human, it's maybe the admiral is an evil admiral. But otherwise, all the humans tend to be pretty good. And they and the Federation tends to be pretty positive and pretty good, whereas in Babylon Five, it's like all our flawed nature came with us into space. In, in Babylon Five, this is not that big of a spoiler. In Babylon Five, in like the second or third season, Babylon Five itself breaks away from Earth because they become Nazis, and there's like a whole like underground Nazi, uh, basically the SS, uh, you know, officers that are still aligned with that, and it's also it it, it should be noted that the humans are incredibly weak compared to, I would say, their closest cousins, right, the Mimbari. The whole show opens with them losing a war to the Mimbari, even though the Mimbari technically surrender, but that's just because they have weird religious reasons to not want to kill all the humans, which they totally could have. They were right there. Um, in fact, there's a number of battles where, like, the Earth forces get uppity and think they're going to step to Babylon 5, and the Mimbari just, like, bitch slap them down and blow up a bunch of ships. Just the technological imbalance is is kind of crazy. Where the Federation is always like, let's take the dilithium crystals and you know hook them up to our jailbroken iPhone, and it's going to work because I'm Captain Kirk and I'm amazing. Right. Right. Yeah, I, I think that sounds what you're describing like a more modern television show, which is kind of ironic. But it's Babylon. not modern. It's so weird. It's yeah. It's like it it, it. it. In fact, in the ways it's unmodern are like, the 90s was a weird time. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I kind of, I guess I forgot just, like, how important shoulder pads were. Oh, my God, the shoulder pads. Yeah, like, like how do how do you fight in something where you can't move your arms? I, I can't, I was, it's so funny you brought that up because this was what I was talking to my wife about last night. It's like, I'm really struggling to understand what shoulder pads were all about. Like, what? Especially on women. Really, yeah, no, like, yeah. yeah, absolutely, yeah. We, we did, I, did, I'm only, I guess it's most noticeable, but yeah, I guess some men probably had them too. Well, um, and like the alien women don't wear them, so like they're, 
and they're supposed to be attractive. But I'm like, well, if these guys, if these like human women weren't dressed like the Terminator, it would. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know what I like, though, about. So if you can set aside the bad CG and the campiness, this is the same for Star Trek, the original series, too. What I do like about it is like this like low brainwave style of entertainment that is I can kind of recuperate and watch TV mm-hmm. and take this in in a way that it isn't newsy. So I'm not it's not current events. No, it's not uh, discovery. Right. It, it, yeah. And it's not discovery. It's and it's. It's because it's also the 90s, it's it's more remote and more removed. I've noticed this with also watching Who's the Boss, mm-hmm. and uh, I rewatched Roseanne, and Home Improvement I've watched a little bit. And, you know, these are shows from the 90s, and it's like it's – because it's further away, it doesn't matter. It's already done. It's already been settled. It just doesn't really matter. And the combination of it not being about current events, not having current – cultural references and being so far removed in the past it's like my lizard brain shuts down and it's it's a very meditative kind of tv watching and i think it's great to work to that's why i like the stuff that has multiple seasons and i think it's great to just sort of chill out at in the evening sometimes so i you know i you've made a horrible case i mean just an absolute horrible case for the show i should be disbarred it was really but what i am gonna do is i'm gonna follow uh this season one do it in a few episodes guide just to get through season one. What the way Babylon five seemed like it would progress is it would tighten up as it went on. And that I had to slog through kind of like meeting the characters understand like the kind of like villain of the week style of the first season would kind of, yeah. Season one is very villain of the week. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, but that, you know, you, you get little character developments and traits that might like, so it's like, I know, intellectually that I should just bank that season and just put up with it. But I can't do that until I'm invested in the show. Not not to further screw my case over. Uh, the problem is once you hit like season three and four, the whole this is all done and dusted, it's eerily relevant now. Oh, really? Yeah, that's where I think Babylon 5 gets good because it's – and I bet in the 90s it seems super outlandish the way the plot goes, which I'm not going to spoil – but it's it's basically now you have the quote good guys are like we need to control the distribution of information because these poor saps will get tricked and the quote bad guys are like chaos is great you know let let everything roll and blah 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 whoever wins wins wow that sounds very topical <laughs> it, yeah it, 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 it's eerie it's it, wow like the human stuff is really eerie and it I would say Babylon 5 is a show about humans written by people who wish aliens would come and, like, be our nannies and bitch slap us into getting our together. Straighten us out. <laughs> right, where DS9 is like... I I love DS9. See, this is the problem. I love them both. I, I, all right, I, I think... So, the argument's lost, right? DS9 is a better show. Oh, there it is. But, but DS9 is only better because it was willing to to break away from a lot of the Trek tropes. Yeah. Like, you know what? I don't know how much, I mean, it's 1992. How much, you know, Cisco is like, we know my love of Captain Lorca. Cisco does some heinous in there, right? He's damn. Yep. Yep. You know, he's really fighting a war and he's not like giving you a uh, civics lecture the whole time. Yeah. Or the time he, uh, he's a Jovert and he goes and he throws a, like an acid torpedo into the, atmosphere of one of the maquis safe the old chemical warfare 
Yeah. How about when he knowingly allows an assassination to take place and helps it along just to manipulate the Romulans into helping the <laughs> right? Like and he'd he do it again. And he'd do it again, right? Yep. He even says he, he breaks the fourth wall. He's like, and I'd do it again. Yep. Like that, that, see, the problem is all these sci fi shows, especially like TNG, they get way too, I don't even know. I'm trying to think of a politician that's that idealistic and I, n- no such creature. Well, I think that's kind of the appeal of the Star Trek brand a bit is that it's a, it's a positive, well, it used to be a positive kind of thing. Things are going to work out. We're going to be pretty chill in space. We're going to have some great tech. And the people that end up running things are actually pretty moral people with good character. Like, that sounds great, right? And I think that was the Roddenberry pitch. I see we're back in Candyland. Yeah. Well, but, you know, it's all fantasy anyway. So why not just, why not sit back and have something? Yeah, Babylon 5 is the exact opposite. Right, right. They suck as much as you think they do. Right. Well, there's, there's a place for that, too. Yeah, there is. I, you know, I, I, although I will say, if you lose Quark's bar, DS9 is a much bigger show. Yeah, yeah. You lose Quark's bar. You need the Ferengi. Yeah, well, like the later seasons, they, you know, this is my old go-to. They brought an old Vic Fontaine, and you went to Quark's a lot less, and it, I think the show did wasn't I as hate big. Vic Fontaine. Oh, I hate him so much. I hate him so much. It's so bad. I mean, Mike, how long ago? Is, okay, when did Deep Space Nine? Deep Space. I'm gonna look this up. Okay. I'm going to look this up, Mike. I'm going to look this up because I – so Deep Space Nine, when was it on the air, huh? It was 90 – 93 is when it went on the air. First episode 90. was in 93. Uh, so then it went for seven years. Okay. Can I tell you something? I am still angry about Vic Fontaine. I mean I am still right now getting angry. I mean I do have all his music. Thanks to Wes though. Of course you do. <laughs> This guy. That's right. I want to pseudo RMR. This dude so hard. It's just they they turned my space station into a karaoke bar, and I just I, I wasn't there for. Well, it. not only that, like the the idea that like the bar, which is like the real only social place on the station, would be a place that people would hang out and make deals, and Quark would over here and occasionally decide to tip off, you know. The, these officers, right? Cisco or whoever. Or try to get in on the action. Or most of the time try to get a cut of that. Yeah. Makes a ton of sense of how that would actually work, right? It, it felt like uh, like Panama in the middle of the, you know, when it was the city of spies. But Vic Fontaine is just garbage. So, yeah, they had high, it's, both shows have their, their highs and their lows, I suppose. Okay, so let, let's sum up. Uh, Babylon 5, production values, first season, terrible. Bajorans, awful. Yeah. Quark, great. Vic Fontaine, delete him. Gold Ducat is a great villain, though. Oh, Gold Ducat is my homeboy, even though and, you want to punch him in the face. And, well, what about Kai Wynn? I mean, that actress made me... Kai Wynn is good. I hated Kai Wynn. She really nailed that actress. Really but she, she nailed the you want to choke her to death thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And how could we forget our innocent Taylor, who's straight up seriously a Taylor and not something else? No, just a simple... Simple Taylor. Simple Taylor. Uh, yeah, I, I you know what I did though, I went ahead and uh, I got the DVD set. I'm gonna rip it, Babylon Five. I'm gonna rip it. I'm gonna watch it. I didn't even know they still sold it. Oh yeah, I found it on Amazon. Found it used on Amazon. <laughs> I don't know. We'll see how we'll see how it arrives. I, I'm, I'm gonna, gonna tell you, it's it's definitely something. You know, just. But I I've just recently been using an old laptop that's got a DVD drive in it, and I'm like, that's it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it old school, like the '90s. I'm going to rip it using Handbrake. Well, I'm yeah, I was just there using Handbrake. Yeah, yeah I'm going to use yeah. Handbrake, and 
There's another like make I forget the name make MKV. Anyway, that's gonna be great. Gonna well, be I fun. will say Babylon Five. Pay attention to the intros. They change it every season, and the intros are really good. That oh, that's, that's where nice. they somehow put all their effort into the intro sequence. So there's one story I just want to kind of just sprinkle out there real quick before we move on. Um, we never really talked about Neuralink starting human trials, which happened this year a couple of months ago. And it's going to use a robot to surgically place a brain-computer interface into a human patient. It's going to be pretty basic initially. Uh, they're going to look at, like, you know, controlling devices for people that have disabilities and things like that. But ultimately, they want to put it on the network, give you the ability to control a mouse and a keyboard and interface with a computer. So we're stacking the holiday boost, and I wanted some 2024 predictions around this. Where do you think, dear audience, Neuralink is going? And what if you took two trends as we kind of coast into 2024 that are happening right now at the end of 2023? What if you took your large language models like your chat GPT, your open AI API type stuff, and you took Neuralink and you had the two connected? What if Neuralink had a plugin for chat GPT where you could think and access information? I asked Bard about this. Besides real-time info, which seems obvious, it said... Bard would love to have the brain signals. Decoding brain signals would offer completely new ways for humans to interact with Bard, Bard writes. Uh, Imagine controlling Bard's functions or providing input directly through thoughts and emotions. This could revolutionize human-computer interaction, making it more neural and intuitive. Bard went on to say there'd be cognitive enhancements as well, like memory augmentation. Neuralink could potentially augment Bard's memory capabilities – allowing me to access processes and vast amounts of information more efficiently. This could lead to significantly improved performance in tasks like summarization, question answering, and knowledge extraction. And one last one that Bard thought would be pretty neat, it's said enhanced learning. Bard said Neuralink might be able to access my learning processes by allowing it to directly access and process information from the human brain. This could lead to breakthroughs in areas like artificial general intelligence and cognitive science. Bard's very bullish on Neuralink integration. I have two words for you. Yeah. Uh-huh. Resistance is futile. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> um, so, I mean, if you got, I would love it if you got it. If you got any predictions where this kind of stuff goes, if Neuralink's going to be a real product, uh, anything going on in 2024. If you have any Borg clips you'd like to send us or Cybermen, yeah. they seem very relevant all we of a sudden. We could use some Borg clips or a Terminator clip. Well, I do love the Governator. Yeah. I just bought his book. I can't wait to read it. I've heard that's actually fascinating and that it's also – it ends up being a little sad too. So prepare yourself for that. You know what? He, he's, he, he's got that accent. Everything he says is kind of sad. He does live with an animal though. Um, so we'll be reading those in our next episode. Since we're pre-recording, we don't have the boost for this, but we'll stack all those. Also, thank you to our members. Really appreciate you as this new year is coming in close and hot. CoderQA.co, if you want to sign up and support the show, you get a ad-free version. CoderQA is when those come out. And, of course, the warm and fuzzies of supporting the show directly and keeping independent podcasting alive, even if it is just barely. Keep this strange, strange, rare, weird medium alive. <laughs> We're like the Babylon 5 of tech podcasts. It's so weird. Well, just podcasts in general. Yeah, like It's true. like the last bastion of decentralized media and it is going to get wait, 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 slammed. Wait. Would you say that we're the last hope for humanity's survival? <laughs> I think you might. And then, like, next year, can we say we're the last hope for victory? 
because that's the, those are part of the seasons one and two intros to Babylon Five. See what I did there? Surprisingly, huh. surprisingly appropriate, dude. So it's amazing. All right, thank you everybody who does support the show either through memberships or boosts. Mister Dominic, is there anywhere you want to send the fine folks? I don't know. I might get bored and leak some stuff on the game I'm working on this weekend. So, Ooh. I, I guess uh, I'll go to the Gomer Gamer Radio. Gomer, not it's Gamer, not Gomer. That would be mean. Radio Discord, because I tend to leak things there. And if you want to catch a game of uh, Magic the Gathering, where I'm definitely not cheating, you could go there, too. <laughs> and if you're not Discord. convinced by the definitely not cheating. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm totally convinced, man. I'm totally convinced. Um, on Weapon X, you can follow the show at Coda Radio Show or myself at Chris Les. The, the most beneficial thing would be you find out when we're going live. Uh, but we're wrapping those up. We have, uh, you know, the holidays coming up and all that. But we always try to lay it all out at jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar when we can. That's right. Last but not least, though, just get the feed. If you have the RSS feed, you don't really worry about when we record or what's going on with the schedule. Makes it all irrelevant. You just sit back and download those episodes. Unless we publish the wrong file accidentally. Which happens. But it does. Coder.show slash RSS for that feed directly, or you can find all the links you want at our website. In fact, links to what we talked about today are coder.show slash 549. Thanks so much for joining us on this week's episode of Coder Radio. See you right back here next week.